All right, as we begin tonight, let's go ahead and take that handout and let's look at the Baptist Confession of Faith paragraph for this evening, and then we'll get right into our text tonight. Uh, This is dealing again in chapter number three of God's decree, paragraph two. Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. So we understand tonight that we are dealing with a God that does not react or respond based upon what man may do or will do. We're dealing with a God that is of eternal and divine wisdom. Tonight we'll be looking at Proverbs chapter 8, looking at verses 22 through 31, and considering that thought tonight, eternal and divine wisdom. As you see here in the first two verses of Proverbs 8, verses 22 and 23, the Bible says, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. You notice those two expressions in those two verses. There is an acknowledgement of a God behind it all that the things in which we see are things that were not by chance, but they were determined by the counsel of God. Now, we've learned over the previous few weeks that this is not just the words of someone who has divine attributes. We've learned that this is the person of Christ that is being mentioned. And we've learned over the weeks that the Lord Jesus is speaking as wisdom. Tonight, I think we're all aware that when we talk about God, uh, we are not just talking about a God who is like others. We're not talking about an almighty who is just a little bit higher than others. We are talking about wisdom that is from eternity. We're talking about divine wisdom. Divine is another word for godly or of this higher power. Uh, Today, man is beginning to acknowledge because of the things that have happened in our world and things that are happening, man is coming around to the idea that there's a higher power. Uh, They don't call him God, but they call him a higher power. Uh, They probably don't even call him him. They call it some kind of an essence. Uh, They say there's something behind everything that we see. But God is not just a, a, a property. He's not just an attribute. He's not just something nebulous. Now, we're talking about God, the part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. As we're looking at this text already in these first two verses, we are seeing not just personal characteristics. We are seeing personal properties and the actions of He who is God. And we know, of course, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is as much God as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So Solomon, throughout this text and the previous chapters, has been showing us that we are dealing with the Son of God. We are seeing Christ himself as the one speaking. 
But he's also including himself in these things that took place in eternity past. In other words, Jesus is identifying himself as being part of, or the phrase we'll use tonight, one with the Father. And in your outline, you see that tonight. There are three points there, and each one of them begins with Christ was one with the Father. So we're not dealing with a divided divinity here. We're dealing with a God in perfect unity, Jesus Christ, as much as God the Father, involved with these acts in which Proverbs 8, verses 22 through 31 are dealing with. So we could say tonight that when we talk about divine revelation, when we talk about wisdom, then we know we are dealing with the revelation of Christ himself. Again, this may seem strange to us tonight because we are so Christ-centered here in our church. But there are many who do not see Christ in Proverbs at all. Uh, The book of Proverbs is a book that is about a lot of good suggestions on how to live a wise life. But I would submit to you tonight, if you don't see Christ in the Proverbs, then the entire revelation of God begins to leave us wondering, who is he talking about? Why is he speaking this way? And what hope do I have if this is all dependent upon man doing it? or man receiving it. Can I tell you tonight that the work of God is not dependent upon what man does. All the work of God, no part of God's work is dependent upon what man does. And many times people get the wrong idea that God can only if man does so-and-so, whatever, whatever that is. And you'll see in these verses, there is no counsel with man. I kind of introduced this thought last week. There is, there is nothing happening where God is consulting with man and saying, before I get into these particular acts, before I create, before I save, before I redeem, uh, before I prepare, let me get man's insight as to what ought to happen next. No, what we're dealing with here is divine revelation. In other other words, it is what is. It's what will be. It's what was. When you see the word eternal in the scripture, oftentimes we make the mistake of saying he's talking about something future. Eternity is not just eternal future. Eternity also includes eternity past. In other words, the things that the Lord spoke in the past is eternity. That's why eternity is not something that is just something future, that's something that's going to be possessed in the future. No, what eternity is, is eternity is past, present, and future. Eternity has no beginning, it has no end. Although in our mind's eye, everything must have a beginning and has an ending. That's the way the human mind works. It's almost impossible for us in our humanity to to even fathom how can something not have a beginning? And how can it not have an ending? And yet, that's the kind of wisdom that's being imparted to us here. So it's fair for us to say, as we've said throughout this series already, that the Lord Jesus Christ is wisdom personified. In other words, when we think about what wisdom is, we think of the person of Christ. 
So as we look at these first two verses in your handout there, it shows us this, that Christ was one with the Father from the beginning. Now you said, preacher, you just said there was no beginning. In our mind, we almost need a beginning point. So we see that in verse 22. He uses the term, the Lord possessed me in the beginning. Now here's the key of his way. Not the beginning of time in the way that we sense, not the beginning at one specified time. Uh, Our service tonight started at 7 p.m., maybe a little bit, a few minutes after that, but it had a specified time. What this verse says is that the Lord possessed me, that's Christ, in the beginning of his way. In other words, Christ was part of the beginning of the plans and the purposes of God. Now, when did that begin? In eternity past. In other words, you cannot point to a time when God started, just like you cannot point to a time when Jesus Christ began. It is false doctrine to say Jesus Christ began in the manger. Jesus Christ in the manger was God personified, God in human flesh. But he had no beginning. Yet in the eyes of God and in our word, it says that he possessed me. The word possessed there, in our, in our human terms, we understand it, to have as one's own, to have it as their property. But this word in its true context is that Lord Jesus himself is saying about God the Father that he possessed me, his son, in eternity. In other words, as long as God the Father's been, I have been. As long as God the Father and God the Son have been, the Holy Spirit has been. They have all three always been. And yet, the words are used. He's possessed me. I was in him. He was in me. There's a passage over in John 14 that we went over not too many weeks ago. And it says this. Jesus' words were, Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. When Jesus said that phrase, Believest thou that, that not that I am in the Father and the Father in me, he wasn't talking about something that just happened. He was talking about eternity past. I have always been in the Father, and the Father has always been in me. But the phrase in the beginning gives us an idea of, okay, what, does it, what did this beginning, what was, it, what, what, was the, what was the intent of it? And he says, before his works of old. Before his works of old. What are the works of God? The works of God before time began, the way we sense time, is in his eternal counsel and in his eternal decrees. In other words, when we read in the Confession of Faith that the things that happen, God knows whatever's going to happen, but not because he decreed it, because he foresaw something that man was going to do. That's not why he did what he did because he saw what man was going to do. This is in the eternal counsel and the wisdom of God. Again, this is a, this is a, a, these, are, these are deep thoughts, but the works of old included 
the works that led to creation. In other words, when we see Genesis 1-1, there were the decrees of God and the counsels of God before you ever get to Genesis 1-1. You say, are you saying there's another scripture? No, 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 I'm not telling you that, but God didn't begin at Genesis 1-1, which the first few words of the Bible are in the beginning God. But it's not the beginning as a certain point in time that said this is exactly when God started. His decrees and his counsels are from eternity past. Eternity has no starting point. So that leads into verse 23. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. Now, we begin to understand this in human terms. All right, in when, whenever the earth was. The word set up is from the Hebrew word, which means anointed, ordained, or constituted. In other words, this I says, I was anointed, ordained, or constituted when from everlasting. Now, our minds are boggled tonight because we, we, we think, okay, so when did this meeting happen between God the Father and God the Son when it was determined that God the Son, Jesus Christ, would be the propitiation, he would be the ransom? That was determined from everlasting, which means there is not a specific point in time that that event happened. It's always been. It is the deep things of God sometimes that make us sit back and say, wow, this is, this is the God that we read about that promises new mercies every day. This is the promise of God that says I should have my hope in him. If a God who doesn't have a beginning, what an amazing thought. This person, I was set up. This is, again, Christ speaking, wisdom personified. Means it was resolved that all of these works the very first works of God that man can identify is creation. Is everybody following? You and I can only identify what we can acknowledge and understand. We can identify with creation. It's a, it's a starting point, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I, I have a picture of heaven. I have a picture of the earth. My mind can identify with it. But God was before that. The eternal wisdom and the divine counsel of God was before that. But yet, so that we might understand, we have this picture of creation. So creation led to a need to do what? To uphold the creation. All right. Now, contrary to our evolutionary false teachers, man is not upholding anything. Even animal life is not upholding anything. The same God who created is the same God who was upholding it. Okay? So you had creation and then God didn't just stop. And he didn't start keep creating because man interceded and said, okay, now because man gets in the... No, he upheld it. He creates the earth. He creates the universes. He creates man. He upholds the earth, upholds man. And then we know in the creation story, man needed a governor, correct? Man needed 
to be governed. So a law was given. That law was to be upheld, and if that law was not upheld, then they were judged. Judgment led to a verdict, and the verdict led to what? Guilty. Which led to what? A redemption. So you see all of this taking place. The redemption to save sinners. Now, when we think about, all right, who saved sinners? Almost altogether, we would say Christ saved sinners. It was the entirety of the Godhead. Christ is the one that sent as the visible representation of God. When you see Jesus, you see the Godhead. But we don't divide them out and say, listen, uh, this is just Jesus' work. No, this is the work of this divine God. Now, we know that these works were ascribed to the Son of God because the Bible tells us this. If you go over to John 1.1, and we'll see John 1.1, then we're going to move over to Colossians 1. We see this being spelled out in Scripture. Just so we see that this is not some declaration I'm making tonight on my own. This is what the Word of God declares. Now remember, we're considering Christ was one with the Father from the beginning. John 1.1 says what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. There is a reference here that, that everything that is can be traced back to not just God the Father, but God the Son as well. The word here is a reference to Jesus himself. So what you see happening here is that there are works, even the works of creation are being pointed back to Jesus having a part of that. So it is incorrect doctrine to say God the Father created the world. The Godhead, the Trinity, was part of it. It may seem like a minor doctrine. It's, very, it's not minor at all. Because Jesus was part of the creation. If you go over to Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, we see another reference made about these works of creation. And then the further works of governing, the further works of redemption, of judgment. Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. This passage, Paul's writing to the church at Colossae about the preeminence of Christ. He says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him. Now watch this. And for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who in the, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. 
You see a reference to creation. You see a reference to be in the preeminence. And verse 20 says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. You see, Jesus Christ is a part of creation, a part of upholding that creation, a part of governing that creation, a part of judging that creation, and a part of redeeming and saving. He's part of all of that. So from the beginning, the beginning again, when there was nothing but vastness. Again, our minds have a hard time comprehending that. Back in our text in Proverbs 8.23, we see these thoughts all coming together. Or ever the earth was. I think he mentions it here primarily because that with heaven was the first of God's visible works. Okay? The heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That, those are the pictures of his first visible works. But that's not when the works of God started. Is everybody all right? That's, that's the idea here. Set up from everlasting, anointed, Jesus speaking, the one who is the subject of what we just read in John 1.1. 1, 1. Christ was not begotten in the sense of having a beginning of life, but as being one in nature and substance with the Father. So in eternity past, Jesus was God. In eternity present, Jesus is God. In eternity future, Jesus is God. Jesus was in the beginning because he has no beginning. All we're told is in the beginning was the word. So when it began, he was. That's what it means. He was already, I love this, he was already past tense at the beginning of time. <laughs> Our minds say, how in the world can that be? Because you're dealing with God. He was already past tense. He had already been. So he was one with the Father. We see it very carefully in the beginning. We've already dealt with this, but he goes on. Number two, Christ was one with the Father in the creation of the world. Notice back to verse 24. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. Again, Jesus is speaking in the first person here. I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. No depths just means there was no abyss. There was no deep water. They were, they, they, they were not there. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. All right? He, he, the, Christ is, has already been before all of this took place. See, Jesus came and Jesus is that visible representation. And even Jesus himself said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, No man knoweth the Son but the Father. Listen, we couldn't even know Christ himself had the Father and the Son not sent the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and to enlighten our heart and open our eyes to the truth of what we were seeing and what we were reading. So when we, when we take a, a statement like this, that we rest in Christ alone, we are not just resting in one aspect of him. In other words, we're not just saying, okay, Christ was the Redeemer. His portion is just going to the cross and dying in our place. 
He is to be included in the whole thing because He was part of it. Now again, some might say, this is just more than we need to know. Maybe. But the Bible declares it. Again, if you take, if you take Christ out of this text, who is the I? Who is the I that is speaking? Because that's what indicates that we're seeing Christ in the Scripture, even in the Old Testament. It's not just God the Father. The Lord possessed me in the beginning, what we saw in verse 22. Who's the me? See, Christ is in it because he's speaking about he who already was. So when we say that our hope is found in Christ alone, it is because he is the Word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is fair to say tonight that all wisdom is Jesus Christ. So before all this was, verse 26, while as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens... I was there. When he prepared the he is the father, the I is Christ the son. When the father prepared the heavens, I, Christ the son, was there. It goes back to what we see in Genesis when the Bible says about the creation of man, let us make man in our own image. Who is the us? God the father, God the son, God the Holy Spirit. So you see all of these references. He had not yet made the earth, the fields. We understand all these terminologies. The highest part. The highest is not necessarily a reference to the highest mountain. It is a reference to the very best part or the head of. That which richness and fruitfulness is found. The highest part is something to distinguish it from the rest of the fields. It's referred to as the highest part of the dust of the world, the the greatest of place. In verse 27, when he prepared the heavens, here's the phrase, I was there. To be there, not just as a spectator, not just as a watcher, but as a co-worker a co-worker with my father. I was there when he set a compass upon the face of the depth. Now again, remembering what we have already learned. The depth, he was there. He made the globe, he made the earth as we see. We remember John 1, we just read it in verse 3, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. But verse 27 shows us when he set a compass upon the face of the depth. It's interesting, if you go back and you study old uh, scientific research about the universe, and I didn't know this, scientists used to teach and believe that the universe was square. A square universe. Now, a square universe kind of makes us think, well, how would anybody ever think that? But scientists believed that at one time. They believed in the square universe. Something else that's come back around recently is flat earth. 
Flat earth is not a new thought. It was at one time, years and years ago, square universe, flat earth. Everybody sees it now and they say, it's the first time they've ever thought about these thoughts. No, man is continually trying to figure out what God did. A compass is interesting, isn't it? Because a compass is a circle. Compass, when you think about it, it's, it's, it's used to uh, indicate uh, rounding it or even a compass. When you think about it, it is, it is a circle. We live in a world that is round. We live in the earth that is round. We are going around a planetary system. Now they've even determined that the galaxy in which we're in, the universes we're in, it is one giant circle. All of these circles are circling around by the compass of God. In other words, there's not a single thing happening in any universe, any galaxy that's not happening according to the determinate counsel of God. There's not a single star that falls from the sky that God did not decree to fall. There's not a meteor that streaks across the sky that God did not determine that he would be the one behind that. Scientists say, we've just found something brand new. No, it's just something you've never seen before. When they see something on a telescope and they say, this is undiscovered by man, God already knew it was there because God put it there. These things are all happening according to a creator. That creator included Christ himself. Jesus said, I was there. When he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, look at verse 29, when he gave to the sea his decree. Now we just read from the Confession of Faith about what a decree is. And when we th- again, we think about these. The word established there back in verse 28 means to strengthen when he strengthened the clouds above, why do the clouds stay in the sky? Now, scientists will give some rambling reason why, but the clouds stay in the sky because God tells them to stay. And again, I'm not being cute, not in the sense that he has to keep saying stay, stay, stay. They stay because they were decreed to be there, they're strengthened. By his word and by his decree, his decree alone upholds the clouds in the air. When he strengthened the fountains, when he shut up certain parts of the earth, he's responsible. He mentions even down in verse 28, uh, fountains of the deep. The very center of the earth where (laughs) There is water that flows through there. He's determined all of that. But again, look at this, verse 29. By his, when he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment when he appointed the foundations of the earth. A decree means he sets the bounds. He sets the limits. It says that they will not pass his commandment. Directly, that means they will not overflow the bounds in which he has set. When the earth was flooded, it was flooded by his decree. 
The only reason when you stand on an ocean shore, when you stand on the beach, when you stand on the sand, the only reason that sea does not overtake that little community you're staying in is because God has said, I decreed that the sea would stay within its boundaries. It really is remarkable. He appointed, laid the foundations of the earth. I don't know if we've ever stood and thought about it. Why do things stay where they stay? By the decree of God. Now, I know people say things today like we're destroying things and climate change and all those things. Can I tell you that none of that's happening and hindering the decree of God? If every ice cap melts, it won't be because man destroyed it, it's because God in his decree appointed it. Now again, that's hard for people to understand because they say, listen, because what that suggests is that God has somehow lost control. God has not lost any control. God has made a law that keeps the ocean right where it is. And wherever it goes is by the determinate, eternal wisdom and counsel of God. These last two verses, Christ was one with the Father in the salvation of man. Then I was by him as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Where was Christ before he came and took on a robe of human flesh to this earth? He was at the right hand of the Father. He was right there with him in communion and fellowship with him. I was by him as one brought up with him and I was daily his delight. By him doesn't just mean his position where he's seated. When, when we use the terminology, and the Bible uses the term at the right hand of the Father, it doesn't just mean where his chair is seated. It means to be by him means he is united to him. He is in fellowship with him. As one brought up with him. To be brought up means gives a sense or a tone of tender and dearly beloved. That's why when we see the phrase, like in John 3, 16, his only begotten son, the begotten is a unique, that's the, that's the definition, it's unique. There is none other like him. The only begotten son of God is not so much about that there was just one, it's that he was unique. There is none else like him. That's what makes John 3, 16 really even more amazing because it is the unique one. One who only possessed what he possessed. And look what it says, rejoicing always before him. He's declaring that I had constant and perfect communion with the Father. And then verse 31 tells us, rejoicing in the habitable part of the earth, of his earth. And here it is. And my delights were with the sons of men. How and why God delights in sinful men, 
goes beyond our full comprehension. To delight in that which is against God, is against his sovereignty, is against his providence, is against his governance, and still be the delight of this God is absolutely remarkable. The habitable part of the earth, it's, it's a contemplation, thinking about what it must have taken, the wisdom and the goodness and the greatness of God in ordering everything the way he has ordered it. From the smallest of animals on the planet to humans. It, it, is, it, it gives the idea, he's rejoicing in that. My delight, delights were with the sons of men. To delight in, it means again, goes back to this idea of upholding. How are we upheld? We are upheld by his power. We are upheld by his providence. Jesus Christ reveals himself and he reveals his father's mind to undeserving creatures. Folks, that's what we are. We're undeserving of the goodness and the greatness of God. But think about what this meant for Jesus. My delights were with the sons of men. In order to carry out the eternal wisdom and counsel of God, Jesus Christ had to take on the nature of those rebellious creatures. He had to become man in order to redeem and in order to save them. He had to become man to go to the cross because there must be a death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. There had to be a death and it had to be a perfect sacrifice. Christ did something that he did for no one else. Christ didn't die for the animals. Christ didn't die even for the angels. He died for the sons of men. He died for unworthy, as we've already sung, my worth is not in what I own. He died for unworthy men. And yet the word delight is used. Rejoicing in the order of God and rejoicing and delighting in the sons of men. Listen, we've already learned tonight that without the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing was made that was made. Firstborn of all creation, superior to all. Why? Because by Him, the Father brought all things into being. He is an un, the uncreated God. It says right there, rejoicing always before Him. Always means everlasting. It means from all of eternity. That means there's never been a time that God the Father was not rejoicing in the Son. You know, we have not always rejoiced in God ourselves. We, we have a point in time when our perspective changed. There are people who still today do not rejoice in God. They don't know God. They don't know him. They don't know the reason why they need him. These delights and these joys, the only reason you and I can even talk about these things tonight and preach about these things is because of the grace of God that's been given and extended to us. 
If you understand anything that we talked about tonight, it's only by the grace of God and by the Holy Spirit that you have any discernment at all. That's what he's given us. The Son of God declares himself to be engaged in the creation of the world. How able and fit is the Son of God to be the Savior of the world who was the creator of it. The Son of God was ordained before the world to that great work. He delights in saving wretched sinners, and so we should delight in his salvation. Christ is eternal and divine wisdom. Let's finish in a word of prayer tonight.